Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm here with Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. A little earlier than normal. I know. I feel like, so I gave up listening to podcasts before 5 p.m. for Lent, and so I feel like I'm kind of cheating by podcasting before oh, interesting. the end of the day. Yeah, so we moved here some we things are. around. Normally we record in the afternoon, normally because we're drinking, so <laughs> it's, it would just be too difficult to record at 10.30 and then... <laughs> go back to the rest of the workday. But since we've given up alcohol on this show for Lent, it made our schedule a little more flexible. Yes. So enjoying some nice hazelnut coffee. Yeah. Black coffee from the uh, Keurig machine here at the office. Yes. So cheers. Cheers. <laughs> this week, we are talking to Meg Kissinger. She recently wrote an article for America titled, When My Siblings Died by Suicide, the Church Failed Us. Now It's Finally Listening. It's a difficult but really important conversation to have. And I really enjoyed talking to Meg. She remains a deeply committed Catholic, despite the fact that when she was growing up, the church, there was still a lot of stigma around suicide and mental illness. And she did not always have great experiences with Catholics when it came to her family's losses. But she's got a new book out. And in that book, I think she tells both the good and the bad that she's experienced from the church. And I think we just need more stories like that, right? People being really honest and open about both the lights and the shadows that they've experienced from this church that they love so much. And I do want to say before we get to that conversation that if you're having thoughts of suicide, you can text 988 or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. But before we have that conversation, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? We got some gossip for our first story this week. Uh, The longtime prefect, this is the director of the Vatican Apostolic Archives, is expected to retire later this year, and he is dishing on his way out. Yes. So this is Archbishop Sergio Pagano, who's been the prefect of the archives for 45 years. So he knows them inside and out. And this week, he released a book-length interview titled Secretum, which I assume means secrets in Latin. Yeah, that sounds right. (laughs) Um, In which he, you know, reveals some stories and secrets that he's uncovered during his time at the archives. Yeah, so I feel like this just, like, invites, like, Dan Brown-esque conspiracy theory. But there are some really fun facts about the Vatican archives that I thought we could just talk about here today. Yeah, so for one thing, it's existed since the 8th century, which is kind of remarkable that they have documentation from way back then. Well, (laughs) and that lends itself to uh, the next fact, which is there's 53 miles of shelving, and most of it's underground in a two-story, fireproof, reinforced concrete bunker. But that bunker did not keep out Napoleon in 1810, who ransacked the archives and took the contents to Paris. 
Yikes. Hate when Napoleon comes and just ransacks your house like that. <laughs> it was only open to scholars and other outside people by Pope Leo Thirteenth in 1881. And until 2019, the archive's official name was the Vatican Secret Archives. That's right. The name secret was in the, <laughs> the department title. Yeah. Yeah. So Pope Francis in 2019 decided that that might have some negative connotations. So I disagree they- <laughs> entirely. I think it gives an amazing connotation to have a Vatican Secret Archive. Agreed. But it is now officially called the Vatican Apostolic Archive, which, yeah, you're right. It just does not have the same ring to it. Yeah. I don't know if you remember when we were in Rome, but we met a friend who was an academic researching medieval popes. And he had mentioned, you know, there is a process now if you are someone with like legitimate credentials and they don't mm-hmm. have to be like, I don't know, you don't have to be like in the CIA or anything. You could just be an academic studying this period of history. You can yeah. submit it to the Vatican and they will give you access to go down there, which yeah. sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And in recent years, there's been a lot of activities in the archives because in 2020, Pope Francis did make the decision to open up the documents from the papacy of Pope Pius XII, who was the pope during World War II. And there's a lot of interest in his legacy. Like many popes of the modern era, he was put up for canonization. But then it slowly came out that maybe he did not do as much during the Holocaust to speak out against Nazi persecution as people might have wanted from a moral authority like the Pope. Yeah, and even Archbishop uh, Pagano, the director who's retiring, he has kind of a mixed view Mm -hmm. of Pius's record. One final fun fact before we move on to our next story. The archives have the original 1530 letter from British nobles urging Pope Clement VII to grant Henry VIII an annulment so he could marry Anne Boleyn. Yes, and this very important document was hidden by the prefect during Napoleon's raid on the archives in like a secret drawer. I think it's an apostolic drawer today. <laughs> yeah. No longer a secret drawer. <laughs> it's just a drawer. But yes, so it was preserved. And Archbishop Pagano, when he was talking to journalists, said that this is where the Reformation was born. So. Amazing. Incredible <laughs> stuff down there. That's, I mean, great thing about being Catholic, the amount of history that we've just like been witness to. So yeah. I'm actually, I'm grateful that we have, you know, archives going back to the 8th century. Super cool. What's our next story, Ashley? So last week, a funeral was held at St. Patrick's Cathedral here in New York for the transgender activist named Cecilia Gentili. And Gentili was a well-known advocate in the city for sex workers, for the LGBT community, and for people with HIV. Now there's been a fallout in recent days with both St. Patrick's Cathedral and the LGBT group that organized the funeral, accusing one another of some level of deception and disrespect on both sides. Yeah, so maybe we should describe what happened at this funeral. So it was at St. Patrick's. It was packed. There was, I think, over a thousand people there. And this group had approached the cathedral and told the director there that, you know, they had a Catholic friend who wanted a funeral in the cathedral and the cathedral agreed to it. Yeah. That's what they do. And there's been some conflicting reporting. At first, the group said that they told the New York Times that they kind of kept it under wraps who Cecilia was, because she was also like a self-professed atheist yeah. with a complicated relationship to religion, yeah. in her own words. And the groups had kind of said they kept that under wraps. Later, they said that they encouraged the cathedral to look into it because she was kind of famous. So mm-hmm. unclear there as to, you know, how... Yeah, what they knew going in. Yeah. What the cathedral knew. So then during the funeral itself, as I said, packed with members of the LGBT community, her family, her friends, you know, in colorful outfits, not what you would normally see at at a Catholic funeral. No. Yeah, I think there was someone wearing a scarf made out of like $100 bills. So if when I die, I was taking notes for my own funeral. So when I die, you could get someone to wear that. That'd be great. So colorful 
clothing, dancing, screaming. It was very joyous, but yeah. there was also... During the eulogies is when things kind of went off the rails from the perspective of the church. They spoke of her as... I can't even say the word, but we keep it clean on this podcast, yeah. so we, we won't. Um, yeah, we won't use the exact word. Valorizing prostitution is how I would say it, calling her a saint, that sort of thing. And it was very much centered on her, and not, I would say, God. You know, but the church thinks we should pay attention which, to it. it which, to be fair, I think that happens at every funeral, and the church always says you're not supposed to do that. But I think it's pretty normal. Celebrities yeah. are not. I think some of the other issues were like there were lots of signs that had, I would say, foul language, at least from the cathedral's perspective on it. And so in the middle of it, someone goes up to the priest presiding and says, we're going to have to shift this from a mass to just a, a liturgy of the word and a funeral service. So they're two different things. So they had requested a full mass, but it kind of became clear this was not really like following the script of a mass. So they decided to pivot and cut it a little short. Yeah. And so... Afterwards, there was a story in the New York Times and the archdiocese, you know, said this is not what we expected, but someone asked for a funeral and it's a corporal work of mercy. So we gave a funeral and it was a pretty measured response, I think. Yeah. So this is where some of the fallout starts. As you mentioned, initially, the response I thought was quite measured in that Joe's Willing, who's the spokesperson for the Archdiocese, you know, said that for every funeral there's ever been held at St. Patrick's Cathedral, either yesterday's funeral or that of any Archbishop of New York or anyone who's ever been buried there, they've all been funerals for sinners. So, you know, kind of hinting at this is a place for everybody and welcome. Yet once there was so much media coverage of what went down, I think the playbook had to shift a little bit, at mm -hmm. least how the Archdiocese responded. Yeah, so they ended up the following Saturday having a Mass of Reparation at the cathedral at Cardinal Timothy Dolan's instruction. And then the group that organized the funeral put out its own statement, basically calling the Catholic Church out on hypocrisy by saying it's a place of welcome, but then not welcoming the trans community in its cathedral. Yeah, and I thought Jim Martin, our colleague here, who's, you know, obviously very well respected within the LGBT community and the Catholic Church. He had an interesting point, which was that he had mentioned he had actually been invited to preach, but he was out of town, that it seems like there were some things that the people attending the funeral thought were joyous and a celebration that were disrespectful to the cathedral community. And in his mind, it seems that you should like at least try to accommodate the cathedral or a mosque or a temple, like if whatever house of worship you're in, you should try within some extent to abide by the rules of that place of worship, even while you're trying to be joyful and have a celebration of life. Yeah, I think that is, I don't want to like get into motive questioning, but what made me more uncomfortable is, you know, did they want to be in the cathedral because they genuinely care about the Catholic faith and think that the person who died would want this? Or was it more of a political stunt? using the cathedral as a backdrop. And I don't think we know. And it Or is both. it just the cathedral's beautiful and yeah. you want to? And like even that, I think, is a bar. That there was one quote from someone who said that Cecilia wanted to have her funeral there because it's an icon, just like she was. Yeah. I don't know. I think part of this story, too, is also like a media story and how, you know, if this is not a celebrity, right, then the way this plays out, I think, is totally different, right? If there's no story in the New York Times, if there's no petition from online groups demanding yeah. that the cathedral respond to the sacrilege that's taken place, I think you see a lot more of a pastoral conversation happening on both sides mm -hmm. that we're never privy to, right? Yeah. And so, I don't know. I think there's at least a public relations story here as well. 
Yeah. And we should say that yesterday, Cardinal Dolan did address this on his radio show. And he said that he believes that the cathedral acted extraordinarily well. So, you know, they were acting on the fly. And I think at least, yeah, like you said, before the whole fallout, I think it could have ended with just like, okay, they had a joyous funeral. It ended. Everyone can go on. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it clearly has made waves. So listeners, what did you think about that? You can send us your thoughts, as always, in our Facebook group on X, or you can shoot us an email at jesuitical at americamedia.org. And now stick around for our conversation with Meg Kissinger about how the church failed her when her siblings died by suicide. Joining us from Fox Point, Wisconsin, is Meg Kissinger. Meg is a Pulitzer Prize finalist and the author of While You Were Out, an Intimate Family Portrait of Mental Illness in an Era of Silence. Welcome to Jesuitical, Meg. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be with you. Yeah, thanks for being with us. I wonder if you could just start by telling us the story of your family. You write about your siblings who died by suicide in this memoir. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about them. Sure. So I am from a wacky tribe. I'm the fourth of eight kids. We grew up in Chicago. I was born in in 1957 and I'm the middle kid. So, you know, coming up in the 50s and 60s and a little bit in the 70s. And we had a lot of fun. And that sounds weird because this is a book about mental illness and the ravages of that. But I think when I think about my family, the prevailing emotion is joy. And that's kind of an odd thing to say, but it's true. But alongside that joy, alas, was also a big wallop of mental illness. And our family just happened to have been profoundly impacted and, you know, most dramatically and most sorrowfully by the deaths of my sister, Nancy, and my brother, Danny, many years apart. But I'm a reporter, you know, and so I spent my career writing about this, what we call the mental health system which is not a system. Anyway, the book is meant to be just what the title suggests, an intimate family portrait of mental illness in this era of silence. And can you describe what you mean by era of silence? Because you mentioned after your sister died by suicide, your father told you and your siblings to keep it a secret, say it was an accident. So what was the motivation behind that? Right. That's, I think, you know, the most dramatic example, but I'll just back up a little bit by saying that at that time, you know, we just didn't talk the way we do today about mental illness. I don't think the words mental illness were ever even really used in our house when I was a little kid. So was that in vogue, like even outside of your house? Was there a vocabulary to talk about it? Not really. Somebody was either strange or there's something off or you were Mm -hmm you know, somebody had a crazy uncle living in the basement or whatever. It was not understood, certainly wasn't understood as an illness. So when I came downstairs one morning when I was six years old, getting ready for first grade and looking for a bowl of cream of wheat, and I went bounding down the stairs and my mother wasn't there. And I just didn't know where she was. I couldn't find her. I looked everywhere. Anyway, turns out, as I would learn many years later, she was being hospitalized, probably for postpartum depression. But again, those were words never known or spoken or understood. And then as the years unfolded, many of us began to suffer and struggle with our own form of mental illness. And in my sister Nancy's case, that was bipolar. 
So again, like bipolar, I didn't use that word till years later because it was just, to me, she was just erratic. Her behavior was up and down. She was feisty. She could be mean. She could be hilarious. Anyway, after many years of torment and several unsuccessful suicide attempts, she did in fact die. So that was in June of 1978. And on that night, she died on a Friday night. And my dad gathered us all into the living room and looked at us very fiercely and said, you know, if anybody asks, this was an accident. And those words scared us, you know. First of all, we didn't think that anybody was going to buy that because they'd seen the ambulance at our house plenty of times before. But the motivation was, you know, pretty understandable if you think about it. You know, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, suicide is a mortal sin. And so people who died by suicide were very often denied a funeral mass and certainly burial in a Catholic cemetery plot. So my dad's edict to us was not born out of being cruel. It was fear. And he was really worried that Nancy wouldn't be afforded a funeral. It's horrible, but also very like touching that your dad is in some ways caring for her. Right. In death even, right? I, I find that moving. Yeah, Zach, that's a great point. And he wanted her to have the dignity of a funeral mass. And just a little background, a year earlier, one of his best friends from growing up had had a son who had died by suicide. And that kid indeed was denied a funeral mass. And my dad went to the mass and was so sorrow filled that, you know, here was this kid's casket, you know, in a hearse parked down the block while they're all gathering, you know, for the funeral. It was a memorial service, not a funeral mass. So he really felt that. But I have to say, you know, a nice epilogue to that story is that, you know, not only was Nancy afforded a funeral mass, it was con-celebrated. There were several priests up on the altar, and that was a great comfort to my mom and dad. And she indeed was buried in the family plot. And so the Catholic Church has greatly evolved, you know, in the years since then. And when my brother Danny died many years later in 1997, the Catholic Church, our particular parish, was quite warm and understanding and comforting. Well, you mentioned when Nancy died that you didn't think most people would believe that it was an accident. And I imagine that would be true of your pastors as well. So what was your experience at the parish level? You know, they must have known something was happening in your family. They were as loving and as warm as they could be. I describe in the book about the night that she died and a house filled up. You know, you would have thought it was a Sigma Nu kegger. You know, it was just like <laughs> this rollicking, booze-filled, you know, people just swarmed. And that's because that's what communities do, right? Communities of faith. And in the place that I grew up and in the era that I grew up, your parish was everything. That was your whole world. You know, we went to school there. My parents whooped it up on, we'd have a fish fry on Friday nights, Saturday night, there'd be a social. Then Sunday morning, you'd haul your hungover body to, you know, <laughs> 8.30 mass. So that was your universe. And everybody knew, you know, that Nancy had been struggling. And then when she died, they all knew that it was suicide. Again, they were loving and warm. The one exception to that, and I read about this in the book, is at her wake, you know, one of the nuns from our high school showed up. And just an old-timey nun and said very flatly, pointed to Nancy's casket and just said, well, you know, she's going to hell. So that didn't help. 
Yeah. <laughs> we weren't yeah. happy about that. But anyway, generally speaking, the people of the parish were kind and loving. I'm wondering if you had any sense of this at the time, or maybe it came later, what it was like to reconcile some of the on-the-ground pastoral experiences you had with sort of the letter of the law teachings and stories you'd heard from other people about the shame and stigma and mistreatment that they'd experienced from the church. It just seemed confusing to me. So how can you have on the granular level, you know, so much comfort and yet the official policy being so cold-hearted and it just felt there was a disconnect and I didn't understand that and it made me angry and it made me, you know, scared and I always stayed in the faith. It just is important to me on so many levels, but it was very painful for our family. And some my brothers and sisters, most of them have left the faith. And that's not a small reason why. Yeah. You're such a talented reporter and turning that skill set towards this like difficult chapter in your family has to be kind of a searing experience, I would imagine. What was that like spending? Because it takes a long time to write a memoir and to spend time with all these details and to revisit some of these like really tough chapters. What was that like? Yeah, just that, Zach. It was searing. <laughs> I knew it going in, but that's why I also took great care in writing my family's story to include, you know, some tenderness and some resilience and some moments of joy, and really to paint a full picture of my brother and sister who died and my parents, because they were many things. They were sick and they were tormented, but they were also hilarious and loving and kind and warm. So I think people need to know that. Well, you say who would want to read a book like that? Well, clearly a lot of people. This has been a bestseller, New York Times pick of the year. And you recently wrote this piece for America about some of your experiences with the book. And it was one of our more popular articles this year. And the same thing happened when Bishop Dolan in Phoenix wrote about his experience mm -hmm. with suicide right. loss. So clearly, even though we're in this era of being able to talk about it more, we have more vocabulary around some of these issues, mm -hmm. I get the sense that people still, we don't talk about it enough. And so anytime that someone is willing to be honest about it, people want to listen. Yeah, absolutely, Zach. I think two things. We need certainly to be able to, first of all, understand the inclination to consider suicide is so human. Now, I have to say, I've never had that. I'm very grateful for that. That's never been something I've seriously considered, but certainly it has been prevalent in my family. I also come to understand the Center for Disease Control did a survey of what people's thoughts are about suicide. And it was stunning to know that upwards of 40% of people at some point or another consider killing themselves. So it's a very human emotion. And we would do well to learn how to have these conversations, to know how to talk to somebody who is thinking about killing themselves and give them the space to talk about that and listen to them. It's hard to listen to that. I remember Danny confiding in me years before he died. He confided in me that he had considered suicide and, and I didn't know how to have that conversation with him. I was scared and I was also kind of offended. Like, why would you do that after all we've been through losing our sister, Nancy? Why would you also put our family through that? So I was angry and I was scared, but 
that's not helpful. We need to learn how to have fuller, more helpful conversations. You write in your article for America, you ask this question, how do I love a church that once considered my family members to be unworthy of eternal life with God? Which I think a lot of people have not that specific experience, but the experience Mm -hmm. of asking themselves, like, how can I stick with this? But you clearly have to the point that you went back to your parish church after this book came out to talk about your experience. So I'm curious, one, how you answer that question that you posed, and two, what it was like to go back to that church and open up this conversation. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that question, Ashley. So I remember during the pedophile scandal, I was covering that for my newspaper, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and I was really conflicted. I just thought, oh my gosh, how can I be a practicing Catholic when this horrible stuff is going on? And I went to my parish priest and I asked him about that. He had a funny answer. He said, well, I'm quitting smoking, so I'm on Wellbutrin, so I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, Father, that's not helpful. Anyway, I went to my own father, my dad, and I posed that question to him. I said, you know, how can we stay faithful when all this is going on? And it's a parallel to how can I stay faithful when the church's official position is that my brother and sister are sinners not worthy of eternal life with God. And my dad gave me the greatest advice. You know, he said, the practice of organized religion is a human construct. So it's made up by human beings and human beings by definition are flawed. But God is not flawed. God is perfect. And if you focus on the sacraments, if you focus on especially the Eucharist, you're not going to go wrong. That's God's love and that's him. It's the pure God's love. So that's what I did. I stayed the course (laughs) and I'm glad I did. So I got this phone call after the book came out, Father Wayne Watts from St. Francis Xavier in Wilmette, Illinois. Yeah. And as I wrote about in that essay, you know, at first I thought, "Uh uh-oh, like trouble. (laughs) I'm I'm in trouble. He's calling to yell at me. But no, he was calling to invite me down to come and speak at the parish. And what a gift that was. You know, it was just a beautiful night. And there I was back to my old gym and, you know, surrounded by my old buddies from grade school. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful night coming full circle, you know, back to the place that had just been really home to me. You do mention being pretty nervous, though, to go back and give this talk. Yeah. I mean, Nervous because it's a heavy topic. You know, I always feel a little guilty that I am the lady delivering this big bag of downers. You know, we're talking about mental illness and torment and suicide and, you know, separations that how the church's position has been so to me hurtful. So that's why it's been wonderful for me to learn about the evolution of the church on this topic and the work of people like Bishop Dolan in Phoenix to develop this, you know, Catholic mental health ministry, because the church is the place that people go when they are so desperate. I mean, I can remember years, I would go to daily mass because I needed that strength that came from those sacraments. And I would practically crawl there, you know, just to get filled up again, because living with just the struggle of this all around me was overwhelming. And mass was a place where I could go to get, you know, filled up again. 
You mentioned that one of the groups that took part in the parish event where you spoke at was, it's called LOSS, it's Loving Outreach to the Survivors of Suicide. I actually did a reported feature on this ministry of the Archdiocese of Chicago back in 2017. And I remember at the time, think like it seemed pretty unique even then. And it seems like, what is it, how many years has it been then? Seven years, six years yeah. later that the church, as he says, really has evolved not only in its teaching on what it says about people who die by suicide, which now the catechism, I should say this so people should know, it's we should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives by ways known to him alone. God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. So the church no longer says they, you know, they are going to hell. And they are really starting to take serious mental health ministry at the parish and diocesan level. So I'm curious what you found in your experience at your parish and just looking at the church today, the positive developments you see? Yeah, that gives me great joy. And I'm really proud of that. So I just signed up for, I'm going to go to that. So the Catholic Mental Health Ministry is having a three-day seminar at the end of April that I've signed up to attend because I really think like that's where this book is taking me. I'm very, very grateful that there is evolution on this topic and that people who are suffering from somebody that they love dying by suicide, they're getting comfort from the church because the suicide rate is doing nothing but going up. You know, it's the, it's the second leading cause of death in young people. And since my brother Danny died in 1997, you know, the suicide rate is up over 30% from then. So even despite our very best efforts, you know, people are still despairing and dying that way. So we need to do well to be there for those left behind and find ways to give comfort to them. I'm wondering what you've noticed in the difference between your engagement with maybe more secular outlets and some of the Catholic press. Are there different things that each group wants to talk about or different things that they respond to from the book in your story? I was kind of afraid about how devout Catholics would accept this book because, again, I don't really criticize the church as much as just report, you know, my family's experience. But I was nervous about, you know, how that would go over. And yet there's been a great reception. I think the Catholic press has been very interested in this. It, that gives me great hope again, that there's a better understanding of the need to minister to families going through this. The secular press, you know, they're just Kind of, yeah. I mean, I think they're looking also at the where we as a society fall short in terms of mental health policy. I mean, the Catholic Church is interested in that too. But I, I just think we're all kind of coming to grips with the fact that we are broken. People are broken. And the pandemic, I believe, underscored that for people that it really taught people what it was like to feel isolated and lonely and fearful. And those are all emotions that people with serious mental illness experience probably on a daily basis. So there's a whole lot more empathy now all across the board. But the fact that the Catholic Church is really turning its attention to this in a full-throated way, again, is something that I'm really happy about. I'm wondering if you could put your, I don't know if media critic is the right word, but journalist hat on because I've been seeing kind of a backlash to the way that we're having mental health conversations in recent years. I think maybe especially since the pandemic, the stigma is so gone that people are kind of 
sharing about their mental health illness on TikTok is the latest like craze mm. or moral panic that people are worried that, you know, young kids are making mental health illness like their identity and that we might have gone too far in kind of oversharing about yeah. this. So I'm wondering just how you think a healthy conversation is had on this in the media space. Sure. So we, we refer to that as oversharing, right? So like in this person's zeal to bear witness or speak truth to power or whatever, that they go a little bit too far and aren't really thoughtfully sharing. Well, this is a problem with everything, right? Because in the old days, you had a printing press and you had mostly old white guys deciding what gets broadcast. But nowadays with social media, you know, anybody can say anything at any time and you can blurt out whatever you want and it's broadcast to the whole world. So it's unfiltered. That's a problem. Yeah, sure. It's great that people are examining how they're feeling. You know, it's it would be even better if there's a way to do that and then thoughtfully put your words out there. I don't know that that's really going to happen. I think about it as like intrinsically connected to our loss of community. You know, when you're telling the story of your parish growing up, I think we've gotten there as a society and talking about these things and being willing, like there's no stigma around going to therapy or anything. But I don't know that we've really gotten to a place where we're okay talking about that with even our friends or talking about it in the context of a community of kinship that I can lean on or that can support me or not. So oftentimes I feel like people are turning to an audience of anonymous people online to get that across. And what we really need is really maybe just like four good friends instead of 4,000 followers. That's such a great point. Absolutely. Yeah. A community, you said it really well. And it's a false community to just blast something out on TikTok. And how do you know who your real friends are and all that? I think too, we need a better understanding of what is mental illness, right? So those words are thrown around. So whereas when I was growing up, we never even said it, you know, now everybody's blasting out and they're saying it in inaccurate ways. So, you know, there are various degrees too of mental illness, right? So there's somebody who is having a bad hair day or is just anxious because they've got a big test coming up or they're sad because their boyfriend just broke up with them, whatever. But then there is profound and serious mental illness, schizophrenia or bipolar or major depression. And those are separate categories, even in the you know diagnostic manual that insurance companies use to provide coverage or not. But when we have a better language and better ways to talk about our feelings, then we can get help more efficiently. But we still haven't really come up with more precise or accurate ways to talk about mental illness. Well, I think your book is going to be a great contribution to us figuring that out. But before we let you go, I want to ask you one final question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Mm. Well, I'm going to say my friend Margot Houston. <laughs> so awesome. Margot, she was a reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel with me years ago. She won a Pulitzer. I was only a finalist. When you're a finalist for the Pulitzer, <laughs> that means you lost. <laughs> but Margot actually won, and she won for a series on writing about older people wanting to stay in their homes. Anyway, 
What Margot taught me, she was maybe 15 years older than I, and I just watched her in the newsroom talking with people. And she always looked for the humanity in people and made time for them. She would listen to them and found the dignity in the way that Mother Teresa and others modeled. And so that would be my saint of the day would be Marco Houston. All right. St. Marco. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. The article in America you can read is, When My Siblings Died by Suicide, the Church Failed Us. Now it's finally listening, and we'll link to that in the notes. And the book is While You Were Out, An Intimate Family Portrait of Mental Illness in an Era of Silence. Thank you so much for joining us, Meg. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Embark on a journey of spiritual elegance with Saints for Sinners, where each one-of-a-kind saint medallion is imported from Italy and meticulously hand-painted in New Orleans. Indulge in the rich stories of saints. Who's your personal favorite? As you observe Lent this year, you may discover new favorite saints. Whether it's Jean-Baptiste de La Salle, the patron saint of teachers, or Saint Christopher, the patron saint of travelers. As Easter approaches, imagine gifting this extraordinary piece to someone special, a gesture that transcends the ordinary. Explore the divine craftsmanship and profound symbolism that Saints for Sinners offers at saintsforsinners.com. Embrace the beauty of tradition and connection in every lovingly crafted medallion. Now it's time for parish announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. What do we got this week, Ashley? All right, this is our last reminder for our live show in Washington, D.C., or technically Arlington, Virginia. Next week, it's on Wednesday, February 28th from 7 to 8 p.m. We are going to be interviewing Cardinal Wilton Gregory about building a listening church in a divided nation. So we're super pumped about that. Uh, You do have to RSVP to attend, so we'll include the link for that in the show notes. Yeah, and there is a virtual component as well. So if If you'd like to tune in, you can sign up for that as well. But Ashley and I are going to be hanging out at the bar after the talk. So if you want to come hang out with us, have a drink, continue the conversation, we'll be doing that after our talk with Cardinal Wilton Gregory. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. What do you have, Zach? So I'm up this week, and this is a fun story. So I am a confirmation sponsor this year for my cousin, and he's also my godson, Gabriel, who is in high school. He's a teenager. And I have been really, like, anxious about what's the best way to try to be, like, a good Catholic role model to him. You know, is there a thing I can send him, like a conversation prompt I can do that's, like, going to make him, I don't know, like, want to continue being Catholic? And obviously, like, he's getting confirmed. He's asked me to be his sponsor. Like some of that's already accomplished, but I've been just like in my own head about this the whole time and looking for like the perfect article to send him or something. And so I finally just like cobbled together something like a Pope Francis talk and a couple of gospel readings and sent it to him in this. It was just a Google doc. There was no like fancy presentation. I was like, Hey, give this a read. Like, let me know what you thought about it and we'll chat about it. And ended up having like a great conversation about it. I was like, wow, you're so thoughtful. Like you're clearly engaged in this. And he asked if we could do that more often. And I was just like, oh, see, like (laughs) I didn't need like the perfect thing. I just needed to like get started essentially. And what I noticed there was I found myself like listening to the evil spirit, which said like, 
you're totally responsible for making like this person like engaged with the church or you have to find the perfect thing. And if you don't, don't engage. And so there are these, the perfect becoming the enemy of the good in a lot of ways, but also it's this voice that keeps you from engaging in relationship. Yeah. Right. And like kind of forgets about the relationship that the person already has with God and the way that God is already working there. But no, I totally relate to this. I'm my niece's godmother and she's still very young, but I'm already thinking like, all right, how am I going to keep this kid in the church? (laughs) And it's like- As if it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can do that. (laughs) Yeah. And so I do, like you said, like the best thing I can do is have a good relationship with her so that she sees me as someone she can talk to and bring her questions to and, and trust. Yeah, but it's yeah. such a weird thing for me yeah. to experience because I could, you know, if we're at like doing our events and someone asks a question about some complicated thing in the church, I am totally comfortable just yeah. speaking off the cuff about that. But for some reason, if my teenage cousin asks me, I all of a sudden clam up and have no well, idea. Well, teenagers are horrifying. Well, yeah, they, they, this one is not. I should say he's a great kid. But yeah, in general, like, yeah, they think everything. By horrifying, I mean intimidating because yeah. they don't think we're cool. That's right. Yeah. I, when does that go away? Do you ever, I, I, like, since I've been a teenager, I've wanted to impress other teenagers. I just don't. I don't know. But so I'm grateful this week to my cousin Gabe for reminding me that God has not been inactive in his life or other people's lives that I'm encountering. All right. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical was produced this week by Sebastian Gomes and Maggie Van Dorn with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, and also Frank Tucson, who engineered this episode. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.